according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in your Bibles, if you would, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Last week we went to heaven and we're still there. We're, we're uh, looking at these marvelous verses about Mount Zion and the unshakable kingdom that we have. And so uh, we talked about the terrible, frightening mountain that is uh, the mountain we did not come to. We did not come to Mount Sinai. That is not our Christian experience. That was Israel's experience in the Old Testament. Israel uh, walked through the Red Sea. They were delivered out of Egypt, and God brought them to a terrifying mountain. And that gets described here in verses uh, 18 through 21. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. And that's not our mountain. And we, uh, we praise God for that. In verse 22, we have our mountain. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. This is our mountain, and this is our heavenly reality for New Testament believers and born-again believers in the body of Christ in the church age. This is our reality, and it's a blessing for us to study it once again here this morning. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's come before Him humbly and ask that He would open our eyes to see the glories of heaven today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is our privilege and blessing to assemble together. It's our privilege to come before you as a body of believers in Christ, as a royal priesthood, with the privileges and blessings that we have in our present church age. And Father, in studying Israel and in their stewardship, the church and our stewardship, the comparisons and the contrasts, Father, are, are so important, and we appreciate everyone. We appreciate the blessing we have to to each one of us stand in your presence. We don't require uh, someone to appear on our behalf because Jesus already did that. He died on the cross on our behalf and he entered into the heavenly temple on our behalf. And with that sprinkled blood, Father, he entered as a forerunner. We all get to enter in today because of his finished work. And we thank you for this grace provision. We thank you for the, uh, the 11 chapters of Hebrews that brought us to this point. And really the, the culmination of the entire book we can see in the, uh, the position, the heavenly position we have here in Christ. So Father, we call upon your faithfulness to guide our teaching, to open our eyes, to bless us and feed us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope in the process of going through this and in teaching this and in showing the glories that uh, folks have come to appreciate as I do uh, the reasons why I say that in the 66 books of Hebrew of uh, the Bible that Hebrews is my number one. It is my all-time favorite. It is so powerful and intimate and marvelous, showing the glories of Christ and our place in Christ. Uh, this is the church age Leviticus, and it's a whole lot better than Leviticus. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Leviticus had a lot of blood and a lot of dying animals and death. We have the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sprinkled blood which was sprinkled once and for all, and the eternal effects that we enjoy on that basis. And so we get to, uh, to study these things once again here this morning. As we looked at <clears throat> last week in verses 22 through 24 here, when you, when you encounter Mount Zion in the Bible, you've got to ask yourself, which Mount Zion are we talking about? Because there's an earthly Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the city of David. It used to be a Jebusite fortress. 
That's not the context for this passage, though. And so in many places throughout the Old Testament, especially when Zion is mentioned, it's the earthly Zion in view. And sometimes it then, by metonymy, becomes representative of all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, all of God's will on earth is, is summed up in the term Zion. But that's not what we're talking about here. We find out that the earthly Zion is actually representative of a heavenly Zion. And the heavenly Zion is the reality where God presently is in the third heaven, we call it. The spirit dimension realm. It's not in the physical uh, space-time continuum. It's not in the physical universe. You can't build a ladder high enough to get you to God's heaven. It is an extra-dimensional space called the third heaven. It is a spirit dimension, a spirit dimension realm in the presence of the Lord. And so when we're talking about Zion, we, we make these things clear. And it's useful. It, go through every Zion reference you have and just kind of categorize them. The earthly Zion, the heavenly Zion, and so forth. I think when you're reading Psalm 48, it, clearly it's the heavenly Zion in view. When you're reading Psalm 50, same thing, heavenly Zion in view. Psalm 110, when Jesus is seated at the right hand of God well, until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. He is seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. That's the heavenly Zion in view. And likewise, Revelation 14, when the 144,000 and the other martyrs in the tribulation, uh, they are going to the heavenly Mount Zion in that, uh, in that vision of Revelation 14. There are also many other passages where that distinction between earthly and heavenly is not so clear. And there's a spirited and lively debate as to which one we should take it as, or should we actually understand it as both, both the earthly Zion as well as the heavenly Zion in a broader uh, application. And so I think Psalm 2, Psalm 20, Psalm 87 are very frequently um, spoken of in uh, ambiguous terms, whereby it's not uh, uh, agreed upon by every scholar as to whether it should be the earthly Zion or the heavenly Zion that is addressed. Well, for our purposes, though, we are dealing with the heavenly Zion, because that's where we all came to at the moment of our salvation. It's also referred to as the city of the living God. It's a synonym for the heavenly Zion. It's also referred to as the heavenly Jerusalem. These first three expressions are all interchangeable synonymous terms. So you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Those first three expressions are all telling us exactly the same thing. And again, Psalm 48, Psalm 87, we've got references to this in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. We saw it previously in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, where Abraham was looking for a city, a city with foundations, a city not made with hands, a city that God himself, the architect and builder, is God. And uh, Hebrews tells us that that's what Abraham was looking for which is a powerful message since Genesis never told us that. Anything in the Old Testament connected to Abraham never once did mention the, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem. And yet that's what Abraham was looking for. And I find that to be interesting as well. To the myriads of angels, the myriads of angels, 10,000 times 10,000, or an exceedingly great number, however you want to handle the idiom, it is a finite number, as large as it may be. It's a finite number of angels because they're all created beings. And uh, God created, uh, however many he created, is a finite number. And they were unseen at Sinai. I remember there was not a mention of any angel in Exodus chapter 20. And yet we know with hindsight that they were there. They were invisible. They were unseen and in large respects, that's kind of descriptive of the whole stewardship of Israel as opposed to the stewardship of the church. In the church age, angels remain unseen, yet we do fight against them. We do have armor, we do have scripture, we do have a struggle against the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and the powers. We also have Bible class, we have instruction that they are watching us and they are learning by watching the church in Ephesians chapter 3. And so um, while they were unseen or unidentified at Sinai, they are very identified as such on Zion, our Zion, in the heavenly places. We are very aware of the role of angels in the church age. We are very aware of the role of, uh, that we play in the angelic conflict because that's part and parcel with what it means to be a part of the royal family of God. Now as far as the rest of this goes, now we want to start talking about the remainder of after the term angels, 
we have to deal with the rest of this passage. So um, really we've got to deal with verses 23 and 24 here this morning. So we have come to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. All right, now this is where it gets complicated, and this is where the Greek actually has some puzzles attached to it. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, is this two things? Is this three things? Is this really just one thing? And how it's uh, expressed? And what is a general assembly anyway? <laughs> All right. Literally, instead of a f- general assembly, it's actually a festive gathering. It is a festive gathering. It is uh, a, an occasion whereby those with the capacity to appreciate what God has done, they come together and they celebrate what God has done. That's a festive gathering. And so uh, as such, uh, when we think about, uh, and this is maybe hard in a secular culture, but uh, Israel and their theocracy, their holidays were just that. They were holy days and they were festive gatherings whereby they gave worship to God for what God has done. Passover was to testify to God's faithfulness in redeeming them out of Egypt. Each, each of their festivals uh, were gatherings to give glory to God for what God has done. And so when you study uh, uh, Pentecost and you study the Feast of Booths and you study the Feast of, ta- of uh, Trumpets and you go through all of the, the feasts of Israel in their calendar year, you understand they were occasions for the nations to assemble in a festive gathering. And so I think this is the best way to handle it here particularly since the author of Hebrews is writing to priests, writing to uh, believers with a Levitical background, that they would understand it in that way. And so it's best, rather than counting it as this item, and this is where when you, if you're making a list and you're trying to attach numbers to them, how are you counting these items anyway? Mount Zion, City of the Living God, Heavenly Jerusalem, are you counting that as three or are you just counting that as one? Okay, And then when you get to the myriads of angels. Is that your fourth item on the list or is that your second item on the list? And then when you get to the general assembly, is that your third item on the list or is that your fifth item on the list? Actually, don't separate it. Go ahead and connect it back with the myriad of angels. Just just lump it in with the myriad of angels. And so the entire expression would be to myriads of angels in festive gathering. To myriads of angels, a festive gathering. And we're equating those expressions. That the myriads of angels are the festive gathering. And this does make sense. In fact, if you have a Christian Standard Bible this morning, that's how they render it. And uh, I, I appreciated that when I saw it there. Also the statements that are made in Luke 15 that reference the celebration that the angels have when, uh, when we get saved or when a sinner repents different expressions that are found here. Luke chapter 15. And um, we have the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the three uh, parables of this chapter that are really the same story three different times, <laughs> told in different ways. But starting with the, uh, the lost sheep, And uh, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep which was lost. And it is a time of celebration for those who have the capacity to appreciate what God is doing. You don't want to be the, the grumbling older brother of the prodigal and, and just mad that the, the little kid came back and, and, and dad's throwing a party. Anyway, the angels in heaven are not like the older brother of the prodigal. The angels in heaven have the capacity to appreciate what God is doing. And so verse 7 says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so the idea of angels in a festive gathering is not alien to the Bible. It's not alien to the New Testament. Here is an example of angels in a festive gathering, of angels in a joyful capacity agreeing with God and the work that He is doing. 
likewise with a lost coin. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so the statement gets repeated from verse 7 to verse 10, and it shows us that festive capacity that the angels have to the celebration that angels have. And so again, we can think of this at the moment of our salvation, that day that you uh, trusted in Christ and received eternal life. From that moment, you came to Mount Zion. On that moment, you came to the heavenly Jerusalem. You came to the myriads of angels in festive gathering, rejoicing that the blood of Jesus Christ has redeemed one more sinner from, uh, from the fire, as it were. And so we connect General Assembly back as a festive gathering connected back to the, uh, the angels. We do get a new item on your list though, so go ahead and give a fresh number to this one, however you're numbering it. Make this one six or four, whatever you're doing in your list. The church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now this is us. This is a marvelous description for the body of Christ. Believers baptized into union with the firstborn of all creation. We know who the firstborn is. We've been doing firstborn studies a lot here recently, uh, not only in Hebrews but also in Colossians where he's called the firstborn of all creation. And the doctrine of the firstborn is, is powerful. And it's presented all through the Old Testament. They had sacrifices for the firstborn. They had other, even in the Exodus event itself, the firstborn was killed unless they put the blood on the, on the doorpost and the lintel. The doctrine of the firstborn is, is a foundational doctrine in, in Old Testament, New Testament alike. And we've been working, uh, we've been doing a lot of studies on this in recent weeks. And so this phrase, church of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, it's a marvelous way to explain a lot of truth in one short sentence like that. Because we, we have all the, the, the theology that comes with ecclesia and all of the theology that comes with prototakos and all of the theology that comes with enrollment. There's a joy in the enrollment. As we uh, sometimes we sing in the when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. As if God needed to take attendance or something, that he was ever going to lose, he was ever going to lose track of where we were. He hasn't lost track. But there is a role. And it's uh, it's a privilege to be on that role. Because before I was on that role, I was on a different role, and that's not a good one. That was, uh, that was the, the certificate of judgment that was written against me. That was the role that was nailed to Jesus Christ on the cross, and thank God for that. Because until I came to faith, I was still slated for the lake of fire. I still had a date with the, the great white throne judgment to be cast into the lake of fire. So praise God that my name was taken off of that role and put on this role, enrolled with the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. So it's a marvelous description for the body of Christ, that is, believers baptized in a union with the firstborn of all creation. And um, you ever want to blow your mind or, or get grammatical with something? If you, know, if you like languages, do you like uh, the little quirks that come with languages? Um, you might understand, of course, nouns can have singular forms and plural forms. Uh, but there are certain nouns that by their definition, how do you have a plural of firstborn? Okay? I mean, he is the firstborn. Okay? Now you can have plural firstborns because each house might have a firstborn. And all throughout the land of Egypt, you know, there was not a house that wasn't touched because the firstborn of all the families. So that's how you can have a plural of firstborns in a, in a, in a plurality sense. But here we have a plural of firstborns in a collective sense. Because each one of us, guess what? When we are baptized into Christ, what do we become? We are firstborn in Christ. And so we have a plurality of, of firstborns, plural, in the collective sense of our position in Christ, being baptized into union with Jesus Christ. And so uh, we uh, can see these things here. Now, um, not to spend a ton of time on this, but to look at Romans 8. You'll see what I'm talking about. We like Romans 8.28 because we like all things to work together for good. 
And uh, so we quote it a lot. And it's a, it's a well-known verse. But what comes after verse 28? So if all things uh, work together for good, is that where the chapter ends? Is that the end of the story? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And there you see it. You see Jesus as the firstborn, but then we see the many brethren. And the position that we have in Christ from which there is no condemnation and there is no separation. This is such a powerful chapter in, in what it presents. So who is going to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? And that's a rhetorical question that God answers Himself uh, abundantly. Nobody. Nobody, no thing, no time, nowhere, no when. Not you. Nothing is going to set. Not God Himself will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So He is the firstborn and we are the many brethren in Christ. In Colossians 1 we saw this in verse 15 and verse 18. And what a joy that Scripture agrees with Scripture. And that as we search the Scriptures to see if these things are so, we have a blessing to be able to compare and relate and and put these things together line upon line, precept upon precept. And that's the advantage of having multiple studies going on whereby they complement each other and they, they, they reinforce each other in very powerful ways. And so, my little soapbox moment here, but this is the advantage of, uh, of coming to more than just one service a week, is that uh, you get more than just the Hebrews approach, you're going to get Colossians, or you might even get Proverbs on Wednesdays, you might get other things to add to the uh, the beauty of what Hebrews is giving us. All right, so Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's Jesus. That's our Savior. And we get to be in Him, partakers of the firstborn. Verse 18 says, He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's another firstborn application. That relates to the resurrection, which happened three days after the cross. The resurrection that's guaranteed for us on the basis of His resurrection. That also is a firstborn doctrine. Hebrews 1.6 mentioned the firstborn. And boy, this takes us all the way back. <laughs> I mean, what are we this morning? This is, uh, this is the 130th hour in the book of Hebrews. So... Um, you might be forgiven if you've forgotten something, a little detail like this out of chapter 1, but uh, it was there and we dealt with it. When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So first advent, God brought the firstborn into the world. Second advent, he's bringing the firstborn back into the world again. And it's going to demand global worship on the part of all humans and all angels and uh, the service that then gets rendered. And finally, our passage today in Hebrews 12, 23. The church of the plural firstborns, the ecclesia, the assembly, or the church of the plural firstborns who are enrolled in heaven. Now this term of enrolled is interesting too because it's only used by Luke. And uh, which, again, part of the testimony, I believe, Luke is the author of Hebrews, but that's, that's a personal opinion, and, and we'll find out when we get there. But uh, this enrollment is only used by Luke uh, in his gospel and in the book of Hebrews, the verse we're studying this morning, the uh, assembly of the firstborns who are enrolled in heaven. And we're very familiar with Luke chapter 2 because this is the Christmas story. This is the background for why Jesus was born in Bethlehem and he wasn't born in Nazareth. Because there was a census that had been ordered and those who were enrolled had to travel. So in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. That's verse 1. And in verse 3, everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. 
This is the vocabulary that we have when we're, when we're exegeting in Hebrews 12 and verse 23. To the church of the firstborn who are census enrolled in heaven. Remember, that's where our citizenship is. That's where our home is. We are enrolled in heaven. We don't have a land grant on this earth. We don't have a tribal allotment on this earth. We shouldn't be engaged in, uh, in uh, kingdom crusades to try to convert this fallen world into a place of glory. That's not our role. Verse five, uh, see, verse four says, Joseph also went up from Galilee to the, from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Understand there were two cities of David. Bethlehem was called the city of David, and then Zion was called the city of David after it was conquered. So there were actually two cities of David in the Old Testament. And verse 5 says, in order to register, that's our verb from Hebrews 12, in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Okay? So there you got it. That's the Christmas message I didn't give you last uh, December. All right. So the, 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 when the roll is called up yonder, thank God we are on that roll, that we are registered in that way. I think this, uh, this goes well with in my father's house are many dwelling places. You're not registered in any of those. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. That the church is something entirely new, is uh, something that had not previously been registered or previously been provided for in the many dwelling places of the father's house. The bride requires a new residence, and that's what Jesus went to prepare when he ascended to his Father. So these things become interesting as well. All right, so to the assembly of the firstborn. And I just, just a word of caution. I don't know if you like to, uh, some of your recreational reading, if you like to break out commentaries uh, of Hebrews, uh, but you're going to get everything all over the map in this verse as it relates to the congregation. Because uh, so there are passages that relate to the congregation of the sons of Israel. And uh, in the Old Testament, those would have an application to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. There's also, by the way, uh, a term for the congregation of the angels. And, uh, and so you're going to get a lot of, um, and especially since angels are mentioned right before this, you get a lot of commentaries that will, will do some work uh, trying to angle that direction. You can ignore all those and just pay attention here this morning because this is I think the best uh, approach to handling this. All right. So the, uh, the myriads of angels in uh, a festive gathering and then the church of the firstborns who are enrolled in heaven. That's where we come to. The day you get saved, you become a part of a body, most of which isn't even on earth anymore. 20 centuries of the church is already in heaven. And so if you go out to a restaurant this afternoon, you lead your waitress to Christ and she gets saved, you're going to add her to this body, most of which is in heaven right now, as these verses here are describing. The heavenly Jerusalem, the Mount Zion, the uh, assembly of the firstborns who are enrolled. Oh, and to God. How about that? What is this now? Item number seven, item number five, however you're listing these. Why is God so low on the list? Okay. Now he is there, and, and Jesus is even lower, so just wait. But God is pretty low on the list. The judge of all. The judge of all. Now, we've discussed already why judgment should not be terrifying. Judgment should be comforting. Judgment should be uh, excited about. We should, we should be thrilled when the trumpet sounds. We should not shrink away in fear or in shame at his coming. That we have, in, in, when the judgment is applied, when the, the righteous judgment of the Bema is applied, we should be rejoicing in love and grace and everything else. Because there will be gold, silver, and precious stones to glorify Jesus Christ with for all eternity. How exciting is that? So judgment is an exciting thing. It's not a fearful thing. And, uh, and I think it is low on the list for, uh, for different reasons. But uh, the fact is that we're, we're coming to all of these places. I don't know how wrapped up we want to get on the order of things. In some respects, the author is using a, a device, a rhetorical device, 
whereby he is comparing the laundry list he gave for Mount Zion with a better laundry list for things that, that we come to in heaven. Okay? And since he had so many in the, in the, in the Mount Sinai laundry list, the, the mountain that can be touched, the blazing fire, the darkness, gloom, whirlwind, blast of a trumpet, he had a long list of things there. Now when he's talking about coming to heaven and he's throwing a list of things out there, we, we understand the, the rhetorical value that this has and, and really um, uh, the items that he's listing there. So I'm not surprised that uh, almost like an afterthought, he says, wait, I haven't mentioned God yet. <laughs> That's probably important. I should mention God by now. And so he mentions God at this point. And he says, and you have come to God, the judge of all. You have come to God, the judge of all. Now, God the judge of all. This is not something to be afraid of. This is something to, to love. God the judge of all was previously referenced in chapter 6. In fact, we spent a lot of time on the chapter 6 warning because that's a chapter that scares people unnecessarily. God the judge of all was previously referenced in the chapter 6 warning. The universal judgment of God is well established in the Old Testament. In fact, it's, it's a no-brainer to anyone with a Levitical background, as these guys were, God the judge, of course. The universal judgment of God is well established in Old Testament theology prior to all judgment being given to the Son. Now this is where we have to stop to ask ourselves, wait a minute, how does this fit with other passages that we know? We have come to God the judge of all, but wait a minute, God has given all judgment to His Son. And we are in His Son. And in fact, we too have been given this judgment because we will judge the angels. We will judge the world. So we have mentioned here just a a little short phrase to God the judge of all. We have so much doctrine that's baked into that. We want to stop and make sure we don't just gloss over because His readers certainly would have. The original readers of this epistle would have had that phrase and it would have hit them from, you know, like a two-by-four upside the head. God the judge of all. Sometimes uh, these are good reminders when we have moments of discouragement, when we have moments of carnality, where we, uh, where we lose our attention of where we are and what we're doing. And it's useful if, uh, if a brother comes along or a sister or a spouse or somebody comes along to remind you that uh, God, the judge of all, is still on his throne and he's still uh, sovereign over what you're dealing with. And uh, I recommend you get back in fellowship sooner rather than later because the uh, judgment consequences will be, uh, will be magnified should you choose to prolong your darkness in, uh, in different ways. All right, let's, let's take a peek back at chapter 6 and remind ourselves of this warning. Because some people read these and they get terrified that they can somehow lose eternal life. That they can somehow have their salvation revoked. And that's not at all what these chapters are talking about or even hinting at. It has nothing to do with that. When we talk about uh, the dangers of falling away, that's apostasy, that's not losing salvation. And when we talk about the need to, uh, to advance in your Christian growth, God's not just expecting you to get saved and then hang around doing nothing until you go to heaven. We're supposed to be advancing. We're supposed to be productive in our Christian walk. I'll start with verse 9, Hebrews 6, 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. God is, not only is He the judge, He's the righteous judge. He is not unjust. And uh, don't grow weary. Don't feel like it's not recompensed or rewarded. Your sacrifice is always rewarded. Uh, You just may not see it in space and time. Verse 11 says, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so we had the warning passages of chapter 6 and the admonishment then to not be sluggish, 
but to stay faithful and serve the Lord and uh, to have the endurance that's necessary to, uh, to fulfill His will for your life. Now the universal judgment of God is well established in the Old Testament. I don't need to uh, belabor this point or make a lot of, uh, uh, I don't have to defend this I don't think too, uh, too strongly because it's so easy to demonstrate. It proves itself. When you read Psalm 9 verses 7 and 8, Psalm 50 verses 5 and 6, you read Psalm 75 1, I mean there's no question there is, that there is a God and that He is the judge. And that's, uh, that point right there is why we have so many atheists today. There are people who profess that there is no God because they don't like being accountable to the God that's there and the God that they have to answer to. And so it's, it's much easier to stick your head in the sand and act like an ostrich and pretend that there is no God because you don't want to do, you don't want to live a life that conforms to the will of, of the righteous God. Anyway, so I'll let you read those on your own from Psalm 9 verses 7 and 8. Psalm 50, verses 5 and 6, Psalm 75, and verse 1. And, uh, and I hope those are all good. I run the risk of typos that I won't catch when I do this, but that's what we're going to do. I want to go to John 5, though, and show you that the Creator God of the universe, who has all judgment, is now delegating that judgment to the God-man. John chapter 5 and verse 27. So with the very well-established Old Testament theology of divine judgment, we now have to factor in an additional detail that comes to us in the New Testament, in John chapter 5. And in this teaching on the Son of Man. And this was, uh, this was confrontational. A lot of the disputes between Jesus and the Pharisees happened over this very question, who is this Son of Man? And a lot of the... Uh, the um, rejection against Jesus, uh, I think, was centered on this Son of Man title that the Pharisees and Sadducees and, and, and really all the hostile Jewish groups were, uh, were not fond of that phrase, Son of Man. All right, John 5. Verse 24, a lot of it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Isn't that beautiful? This is our position in Christ. We're saved. We don't come into judgment. We are not condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's why the Bema shouldn't be feared. It should be embraced. We should be thrilled with the Bema because we are thrilled with the cross. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And it's interesting because we have two resurrections to look forward to. The resurrection of glory and the resurrection of death. The believers, of course, face the one. The unbelievers face the other. For as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now this is a delegated judgment. This is why it's going to be Jesus on the, on the Bema, not God the Father. This is why it's going to be Jesus on the great white throne and not God the Father. Because all judgment has been given to the Son and in the Son then, by extension, the church. Because we have a judgment function as well in Christ. So this becomes an important principle. Judgment being given to the Son because He is the Son of Man. Because He is undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person forever. He is the one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. And so God the Father gives all judgment to the Son of Man. And uh, in particular the victorious Son of Man who will lay down His life that we might live. Matthew 25 in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus speaks to this. Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. So that's not first advent. Remember, kenosis, He laid aside His glory. Kenosis, He came humbly. He was born of a virgin. But second advent, 
when He again brings the firstborn into the world. Second advent, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what a joy we have to, uh, to see that. So all judgment has been given to the Son. By extension, all judgment now is in the Son and through the Son, the church. These don't contradict, these complement. And I hope we understand that. Still in Matthew, back up to chapter 19, and you'll notice this in verse 28. Matthew 19, 28. Hmm. Peter's having one of those moping moments. Peter had a lot of those. And he said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And typically, humans will tend to exaggerate what they've sacrificed, and they will tend to exaggerate all the good works they've done. Whatever the case may be here, Jesus is very patient and he answers Peter's question. He says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is key. And people that try to merge Israel and the church have no answer for this. Because how, how do you judge yourself? Because there's 12 tribes of Israel that need a future judgment. And it's not going to be Israel judging Israel. It's going to be those who follow me in the regeneration, it says. He's the firstborn from the dead. And guess who gets resurrected right after him? Us at the rapture of the church. And so, sitting on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We have a judgment function. 1 Corinthians 6. This is why we don't sue one another. This is why we should handle our own business. You're going to take your brother to court? Can't you guys work it out? You're equipped to work it out, so work it out. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So you've got an issue in the local church. Deal with it. Find an older man. Find a pastor. Find an elder. Find somebody. Deal with it. We're not going to take our business down to the, to the, to the secular judge and file some kind of a, a lawsuit in an earthly court. That court has no standing. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world if the world is judged by you? Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? We're being equipped to judge the world. We should handle our business. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? You know, you can go get any judge you want out of a secular court, even on up to the Supreme Court. Go get the Chief Justice himself, John Roberts, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He has no standing at Austin Bible Church to resolve issues that we are dealing with here in the spiritual walk of the church age. He's a secular judge. Ours is a spiritual walk in Christ. And we take care of our business. They are of no account. No account. I don't know, you ever watch the news and sometimes a lawsuit gets thrown out and they say it's for lack of standing. It's thrown out for lack of standing. They're saying you're of no account as far as our court is concerned. Go away. And we get to say the same thing to the secular judges of this planet. That they are of no account to the royal family of God. Our spiritual walk is before Jesus and He's the head of the church and these other judges. That's why it's a loss. You've lost already. doesn't matter who wins or who loses in the secular court. You're both losers. Even filing the lawsuit means you've lost. 
That's verse 5 here, 1 Corinthians 6. It says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. So actually then it's already a defeat for you that you have a lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You're better off just losing this secular lawsuit than even engaging it to start with. All right, so we have God, the judge of all. Then we have, and there's others. We can, we can go to Revelation 2, we can go to Revelation 3, Revelation 20. Why are all these sins, I mean, why are these seats there? Revelation chapter 20. When we talk about judging the world and ruling because we're in Christ, he who overcomes. When we get to Revelation 20, at the second advent, there are plural thrones that are set up. And this mirrors a passage in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, there were multiple thrones set up, but those seats weren't taken. Daniel had no concept for why there were so many thrones. There are all these thrones set up in in, in Daniel chapter 7, but the only one who was seated was the Ancient of Days. And imagine Daniel's head had to have been spinning. What, What are the extra seats for? Why do we have all these thrones if there's only the Ancient of Days taking his seat? Well, it's because in the Old Testament, Daniel knows nothing about the bride of Christ or the church age. Multiple thrones make no sense to him, but nobody's sitting on them, so I guess that's a problem. But here in Revelation 20, verse 4 says, I saw thrones and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Now how does that work? How can judgment be given to them if all judgment has been given to his son? Well, you and I know it's because They are His Son. They are the body of Christ in His Son. And so we get to observe as tribulational saints are resurrected, as Old Testament saints are resurrected, as heroes, men of whom the world is not worthy, are resurrected. Understand when Daniel himself stands in the resurrection to receive his eternal reward, do you know who he's going to get it from? From us. From Jesus and his bride on these thrones. Isn't that humbling? Isn't that overwhelming? It sure motivates me. I want to get prepared. I want to be suited for this kind of function. To God the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now here we start to take a look at the order of this. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now they are mentioned after God the judge, but before Jesus in the sprinkled blood. And I don't think that's an accident. I think at this point, I wasn't so sure earlier if the order meant anything, but when we get to this point and we reach the, the items that follow, it starts to seem like the listing of these final items seems to be coming in a deliberate sequence. So we don't mistake who's in view in each of these circumstances. Spirits of the righteous made perfect. They're mentioned after God the judge, but before Jesus in the sprinkled blood. My conclusion, these are Old Testament saints, Jews and Gentiles, not yet bodily resurrected. That's why they're spirits. They're not yet bodily resurrected, but waiting for their future bodily standing upon the earth. In fact, until the church age, they couldn't even be in heaven. They used to be in a place called Abraham's bosom. They used to be in a place called Sheol in the Hebrew. And it was not until Jesus took captivity captive that he transferred paradise from Sheol up to the third heaven where it resides today. So prior to the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection and his ascension, the spirits of the, of the righteous made perfect, they weren't even in heaven yet. They were in Abraham's bosom in that compartment of Sheol across the gulf from the place of, uh, of torments. But now they're in heaven and they are waiting their future bodily standing upon the earth. You can read some about this if you want. I'm running out of time, but in Job 19, there's a Gentile perspective for the bodily resurrection to stand with the Redeemer on the earth. In Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13 Go your way, Daniel. He was going to physically die and be resurrected on the last day. Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40 makes it clear that those Old Testament saints cannot be perfected without us. 
apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And so they are spirits of the righteous made perfect, waiting for their future bodily resurrection. They will uh, receive their judgment from us. Then finally to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Interestingly, where is that blood sprinkled? To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. We're going to take communion here in a couple minutes. And we're going to testify to the death of Christ. We're going to testify to the shed blood. And we're going to testify to the not yet sprinkled blood. Because you see, you and I function in between First Advent and Second Advent. Where the blood of the covenant has been shed, but the blood of the covenant has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel. That doesn't happen until he comes in the second advent. And so the sprinkled blood, where was it sprinkled? Well, Jesus ascended to heaven and he sprinkled, and we we read in Hebrews 8, we read in Hebrews 9, that he went to heaven, he cleansed the heavenly temple, and that's where we are. That's where these verses are. Sprinkled on the heavenly temple and sprinkled on us, but not yet applied to the nation of Israel of Israel. That's probably the most um, mistaught thing I've ever encountered in any commentary in the book of Hebrews. Is that when Jesus died on the cross that somehow that blood applied to the nation of Israel. When it was the nation of Israel was an open rejection to the Messiah. They crucified Him. They rejected Him. This blood was not applied to them. It was set aside. There were little bowls to set them aside. Just read through Exodus 24. We went through this as we were teaching Hebrews 8. The blood of Jesus is the blood of the covenant, but that covenant is not here yet. The covenant will be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah after the tribulation. So stay tuned for this. I'm going to have to pick up with this. In fact, it's, it's too important to not come back to this. And then the sprinkled blood and how it talks. Abel's blood spoke, still speaks. But the blood of Jesus speaks and it saves. So we'll be contrasting that as well. All right, Lord willing and rapture pending, the next time we have the opportunity to be here together, we'll, uh, we'll come back to the slide and we'll, we'll go through these things. I want to make sure we're solid on this. Because I think too many Christians think that the church is party to the new covenant. Even though we're in Christ and he's the mediator of the covenant. And we want to be clear that the new covenant is not with the church. We're ministers, not parties to the new covenant. And we'll talk about that also. So Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your truth. And I thank you that this is a communion Sunday and that we have the blessings to be able to look at these principles, to see these scriptures, to fix our eyes on the cross and to remind ourselves that the blood of Christ of Jesus Christ saves us the blood of Jesus Christ also sanctifies the covenant people of Israel for the millennial kingdom and that is not yet accomplished i thank you for showing us these things and demonstrating for us the privilege that we have to proclaim the lord's death until he comes to uh, to be living testimonies to the past completed work and the upcoming yet-to-be-completed work. And uh, oh, that it were today. Father, we are looking for and hastening the coming of that kingdom. We are eager to see it manifest. We would love to have the name of Jesus praised on every lips instead of the anger and the vile use that his name gets put to today. So Father, we thank you for these blessings. Open our eyes to these truths. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.